can turn there now, we'll turn there in a second, but I want to read very quickly for you John chapter 11 as we begin this chapter, verses 1 through 6. Well, actually, I'll read verses 1 through 16, but we'll only deal with verses 1 through 6. Familiar passage, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again. Remember John chapter 10, this is what just happened. He makes himself to be God, they pick up stones. This just happened, and now he's wanting to go back, and the Disciples question that, and Jesus answered in verse 9. He says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the day, uh, light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So here's my objective today. I want to provide for you an opportunity that you may see further into God's agenda of making known to the world the divinity of his son. I'll read that one more time for you. I want to provide for you an opportunity through this text that you may see further into God's agenda, long-standing agenda of making known to the world the divinity of his son. So the context is what? A death. Not just anybody's death, but a death of a friend. Not just anybody's friend, but the friend of Jesus. Now, Jesus had several acquaintances. Jesus was very social, especially in his public ministry for those years. But the scripture, although it doesn't say much about Lazarus, it tells us something very significant here with regards to the two sisters and their brother Lazarus, is that Jesus and the two sisters and the brother were close friends. They were his dearly beloved friends. And this really matters so Jesus' friend has died. And you know what? Death is not something that is strange to us or not strange as far as we see it. We know that it's there. It may be something that we don't want to come to terms with, that we don't want to square up with, something that we don't want to just look in the face. I've stood at the head of many, in my short ministry, I've stood at the head of many coffins. And I've seen a lot of death. Fortunately, I haven't had a lot of family members die because my parents had me at a very young age, which means that my relatives are not that old, but they're getting there, and it won't be long before that probably start, well, that starts to happen. But I've seen a lot of that, and you have too. Some of you have seen a lot of it recently. 
And it's not easy. It's definitely not fun. I just came back from Mississippi on an impromptu trip to uh, go to my, one of my closest friend's grandmother's funeral. And it was much like any other funeral that I've ever been to. Much like any other funeral. You know, you have a few songs that are sung, typically songs that the deceased would have liked no matter what their background is, no matter if they're Christian or not. I've heard songs from all across the board, all across the charts. I've heard all kinds of songs. I've been asked to sing all kinds of songs at funerals. So death is something that we are familiar with, something that we don't necessarily want to be more acquainted with. We cope with it in different ways. We treat it differently depending on who you are, your temperament, your disposition, your personality, your nature. But death is for sure causes us to realize or come face to face with the inescapable issue of our mortality. Benjamin Franklin said these words that you would be familiar with. He says, in, the, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except what? Death and taxes. Now, what's interesting is although Benjamin Franklin is credited with saying these words in 1817, it's actually an adaptation from a guy named Daniel Defoe who said the similar thing in 1726 in his work, A Political History of the Devil. But the sentiment is still there. It says, you know what? There are things that are just going to happen. If you live long enough, you will die. These things will happen. The sentiment is there. Now, this is a secular source we understand that there are more things that are sure than just death and taxes. We understand that the word of God is sure, that it is reliable, that it is a certainty. We know that Jesus as the Messiah, we know that Jesus will return. We know that God is eternal. We know that the scriptures, I'm a handsome man. We know all these things are certainties, right? But the sentiment of the statement rings considerably loudly in our ears, that death is certain. I'm not trying to create a despondent type of macabre atmosphere here today. We all walk out, you know, feeling like I'm depressed now. <laughs> you know, I just want to go shut some lights off, you know, and cry for a bit. I'm not trying to do that. But the context of this scripture is a death. And not just anybody's death, but the death of a close friend of Jesus and a death of a, of, of a brother, a son, and a friend to many. We think about these things, don't we? I turned 40 this Tuesday, right? 40. You got that? You got that, you know, Elliot's? <laughs> I turned 40 this Tuesday. They met me. I could barely grow a beard. I had a few whiskers. I was a young 25-year-old. And uh, some of you could grow a beard before that, but not me. The average male lifespan is 76.1 years. The way I look at it, I'm well past halfway, or I'm, 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 I'm on the way. That's assuming I live the average lifespan. I'm not morbid. I have my way of dealing with death. I have death. I have the way that I cope with it. I tend to make jokes about myself. I tell people, I, well, Wesley told me the other day, I said, Wesley, I'm practically dead. He said, ah. He said, you're about halfway. <laughs> we all think about it. Even the scriptures, the scriptures won't even let us forget about it. From the, out of the gate in Genesis 3, the curse was what? Death. There's a theme of death. As a matter of fact, the dominating theme of the Bible, next to the glory of God, the redemptive narrative says what? There requires a death in order for there to be life. 
we can't get away from it. For better or for worse, we can't get away from it. It was the curse that was placed on us after the fall in Genesis 3. We see death as the thousands of years of biblical redemptive history unfold. We're taught that life is a vapor. It's, it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. We're told not to look towards tomorrow because who knows what a day may bring forth. We're told that the grass withers and the flowers fade told these things happen just like this we are face to face with the reality of our mortality every single day the apostle paul calls death the final enemy the last enemy but he calls it an enemy because it's not good not in that sense we all eventually come face to face with our own mortality and to deal with this issue of mortality and it's dealt with in many different ways all around the world the funeral that I went to, like I said, a few songs were sung. Somebody comes up and says some nice things about the person, how they lived, a celebration of life. That's common, common vernacular in, in our Western culture. And then someone else comes up, a preacher, and they better not be too long at a funeral. So they get up for 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe, and they say some things from the Scripture to encourage the family. It's appropriate, it's great, it's good. I don't have any problem with that. We do that. We say some prayers, and we go to the graveside. We line up, and then we place roses or whatever flower you have. If you do that, most people do in my experience, and you put it on the casket, and you go on. The pastor comes up, and he says a few nice words. That's before the flowers were laid there. It's usually the same thing, and I've seen it literally just tons of times. Not literally, but I've seen it tons of times. In eastern Indonesia, a little bit different scene. It's an event that involves an entire village. Lavish funerals. Lavish funerals lasting up to weeks at a time. The deceased are kept in a room, in a house, and they're symbolically fed. They're set up, or they're laid down, or they're their bodies are, 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 are staged a certain way, like maybe with an arm out here and somebody sits beside it and takes a picture. This is commonplace in eastern Indonesia. And there would be this sacrificial in their mind after this period of staging the body and taking pictures and enjoying the deceased's company before the sacrificial buffalo finally takes it to the next life. That's what they believe. South Korea, as recent as the year 2000, a law was passed requiring anyone buying or, or burying a loved one to remove the grave after 60 years because of limited space for, uh, for burial plots. Cremation has become much more popular in these areas. Several companies, in fact, they make these things called death beads, where they take the body after they've exhumed it after 60 years, and they make it into beads that you can drape around your house or wear around your wrists or your ankle in turquoise, pink, blue. This is the way that they deal with death, even 60 years after the fact. Bali, Indonesia, strange as it seems, it is there that cremation ceremonies that the Bal Balinese have their greatest fun. In 2008, the island saw one of its most lavish creations ever as a guy named Agung Sayasa, head of the royal family, was buried along with 68 commoners. And there was this large processional. They built this giant platform, a giant platform made of bamboo, an enormous wooden bull and a wooden dragon. After a long procession, Sayasa's body was eventually placed inside the bull and burned as the dragon stood as witness to the burning of Sayasa's body. This is how they deal with things in Bali, Indonesia. Madagascar, the Malagasy people of Malag Madagascar have a famous ritual called the, uh, the uh, famadiana, or the turning of the bones, 
Once every five or seven years, a family has a celebration as its ancestral crypts where the bodies wrapped in cloth are exhumed and sprayed with wine or perfume. As a band plays lively celebratory music, the family members take turns dancing with the exhumed body. And this goes on for days and days and days. For some, it's a chance to, pan, uh, to, to pass family news to the deceased and ask for their blessing. For others, it's a time to remember and tell stories of the dead. This is the way they celebrate or deal with death in Madagascar. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. As you read through how different religions, different faiths, different people groups, different cultures, they deal with these things. But it's a reality. It's a reality. So in this text, I wanted to use that to set this text up because I want you to try your best to put yourself in a first century context. We don't bring the Bible to our context. We go to the source and we say, what are they experiencing there? That's how we interpret this. We engage in its right context, in its right time. So this is a time for people to grieve. This is a time for people to be hurt and a time for people to be broken. And Jesus is not exempt from the hurt. He's not exempt from the concern or the compassion or the care. So here we have Jesus, who is no stranger to death, death has now lost a friend and is affected by his death. So the players in this story are four. Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I don't always do this, but because we have some key players, I want you to know a little bit about them. Mary, Lazarus' sister. This is not the Mary that carried Jesus, but this is a friend. This is Martha's sister. This is the Mary, as the scripture have already told us, who anointed the feet of Christ. We'll see that in John chapter 12, so I won't give too much of that away. Mary proved to have deep affections for Jesus and a great devotion to him. That's exemplified in the cleansing of his feet, preparing him for burial. Martha Lazarus' sister, Mary's sister. She has a strong Christology, a strong awareness, a strong understanding of Christ. She says later in the text that you are the Christ. You're the Son of God who is coming into the world. So she has her wits about her. She's no slouch. She also has a solid eschatology because when Jesus speaks of the resurrection, she goes, I know that, that we will be resurrected in the last day. So she speaks towards these things. So she's no slouch. She's a thoughtful person, we think. So Martha, she's the main figure interacting with Jesus in this text, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks. And she's a dear friend of Christ's as well. And then there's Lazarus. We don't know much about Lazarus. There's a few mentions of him in other texts, but there's, he's not given speaking roles in the Bible. There's not dialogues necessarily between he and anybody else in the Bible that I've seen. Even with the rich man and Lazarus, it's not that he comes out talking or explaining things. But what we do know is that his name means the one God has helped. Now Lazarus received that name, I believe, by divine providence because this was well before he was ever raised from the dead. But his mother, through the providence of God, not knowing that he would be raised, that, that well, we don't know. God may have told her. I don't know. But the scripture doesn't tell us. But she named him Lazarus, meaning the one God has helped. And not much other than that, than he was a close friend and the brother of the two sisters do we know about Lazarus. But we know this, he was a dear friend of Jesus. He was a dear friend. So something starts to happen in this text that we'll see in verses 1 through 6. There's a few things that I consider to be fairly unique that I just want to show you. So I'll show you these two things that are unique. A message that is given and then a response that is offered. And that's where we'll stop for today. So 
in John chapter 11, just to start off. Again, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Whose brother Lazarus was ill, so that uh, so, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, the illness, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So I see first, there's a uniqueness of Mary and Martha's message. There's something interesting about the way that they petition him or the way that they communicate with him. Notice this, when they sent message to him, by the way, it would take minimum two days, maybe three days to get to Jesus where he is. So that's important for you to know. That's very important for you to know. It would take two or three days, two days minimum, to get this message to Jesus. Didn't have email or anything like that, right? So someone had to carry the letter or carry the message physically. So Jesus is far north from where these ladies are. And Lazarus is sick, and what they say to him is not to ask him to heal Lazarus. They don't say, would you heal him? They don't say, would you raise him from the dead? When the letter was sent, or when the message was sent, Lazarus was just sick. But he was sick unto death in their eyes, because that word illness that they use is a word that connotes an illness that will lead to death. So maybe, in the common vernacular, maybe he had a terminal cancer, and he was in the last stages of his life. It was something like that. That was the strong implication. That was, the, that, that was what was strongly connoted, and that's what Jesus would have received from them. But they didn't ask him to do what he could have done. They just said, he's ill. And I find that odd. I find that kind of strange. And they started this letter, and they said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. I think there's a weight behind the fact that Jesus loved Lazarus. He was a friend to Christ. Later, Jesus would weep over the whole scenario, and that'll be unpacked later. He would weep of the pain he saw and the loss that Mary and Martha were experiencing. Jesus was not someone that's impassable. He's not without emotion. He absolutely cares, even though he was going to resurrect him. And that's a fun discussion that we'll see later but the one that you love is ill. The message itself was unique because Mary and Martha didn't request anything of Jesus. They said, hey, the one you love is ill. He's sick. I don't know about you, but if I was in, 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 in that kind of friendship with Jesus, I mean, they've, they've seen things, right? I mean, think with me as, as I was thinking about this. You know, it's it's... They saw him do things. They believed Martha had a healthy Christology. Martha had a healthy eschatology as far as we could see. She knew that Christ was something, that he was sent from God, that he was the son of God coming into the world to save people of their sins. And she had seen him perform miracles. I'm quite certain that she was familiar with the healing of the nobleman's son. I mean, there's all of these things that, that, that they would have seen, that they would know, and yet their request, they didn't make a request. They just informed Jesus as to what was happening. There's a few possibilities, I think, but I do find it odd because I would cash in on a favor. I, I absolutely would. If, I've got, if, if my motorcycle's got issues, I'm calling Travis, you know, because we're buddies, we're friends. I'm like, hey, man, you come and help me out for free. That's how this works, okay? 
You know, I mean, if I've got to do some engineering stuff, I'll get Joey to call one of his friends. I mean, I'll do that, right? So I'm going to cash in favors of the people that I know. Josh has come over and helped me work on engines before because he knows that kind of stuff for free, and it's great. I'm going to cash in on that favor, and one day maybe I can be helpful to him in that way because these are great things that we get out of each other's relationships. And I don't know why they didn't cash in on the favor of the relationship they had to Jesus. Could have easily been said, Jesus, I know you're far away, and by this time Lazarus might be dead, but you can speak and bring people to life. Would you do that for our brother? But you didn't do that. I'm like, I could get it. Maybe the disciples who were confused sometimes, who, who, who missed things sometimes, they couldn't see the forest because of the trees, but Martha seemed to get it. Why didn't she petition the Lord to use his power to resurrect Lazarus? I think there's two possibilities. One, perhaps they simply trusted the wisdom of Christ to do what would be best in that scenario. That could be what was happening. I looked at this for a while, and I don't believe that's what is happening. The sentiment of that is still true. Whether or not this is the case, the lesson is still this. Jesus will always do what is best with what he knows. And what does he know? All things. Now, on earth, there were certain things he chose not to know. And that's expressed in the scripture. He was fully omniscient, but he chose not to know certain things, as he said. He knows all things and does what is best in our best interest with all that he knows. Or maybe it's the other possibility. Perhaps they knew that by the time the message reached Jesus, their brother would be dead. Simple as that. He's dying, and he doesn't have long. Maybe they've seen it before. Most likely they've seen it before, and they knew the trajectory of this kind of illness, maybe. And maybe they said, it's going to take three days to get to Jesus. He'll be gone. Maybe they didn't think he could speak and resurrect Lazarus. They didn't think about that. Maybe they just thought, you know what? He's dead. If they were just sick, the Lord could heal him. Maybe it didn't register to them that he could actually raise them from the dead. That's a big deal. It's a bit different from speaking and someone being sick and then not being sick. In our minds. Not to the Lord God, but in our minds, that's, that's a big deal. Because people recover from being sick all the time. But you know who doesn't recover? Dead people don't recover and become alive. Not without some wild miracle. So perhaps they knew that by the time the message reached Jesus, their brother would be dead. This is most likely the case as far as I understand. Because Jesus was so far north from them. Although Mary showed great, I'm sorry, although Martha showed great doctrinal insight. I think maybe I would submit this. This is how I've wrestled with this and how I feel that the Lord communicated this to me. I think that maybe as astute as Martha was, as, as, as much doctrinal prowess and acumen she had, I think maybe her confidence in Christ may have hit a ceiling. Later she says, if you were here, if you would have been here, you could have, you could have helped him out. But what about when he was there? 
There's no mention of Martha saying, hey, you're here now. <laughs> you're here now. Yeah, he's been in tomb four days. You're here now. He stinks. All this is happening. His body's decomposing. All those things have happened. The gases have leaked out of his body. All that's happened. Yeah, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's a stench. It's gross. She says that. But you're here now. You're here. Proximity's not the problem. Time is not the problem. She doesn't mention those things. We know those things. Time, proximity, boundaries, none of those are an issue for our Lord. I think maybe despite her great doctrinal insight, I thought maybe her competence may have hit a ceiling. I think she showed great confidence when she said that if you would have been here, you could have healed him. But I think the lack of confidence is expressed in that he couldn't heal from afar and that he couldn't raise Lazarus from the dead. And I would maybe suppose those because she hasn't mentioned those things. So I would assume or I would surmise or deduce that maybe her confidence had hit a ceiling. She thought he could do all these things but didn't think further. Oh, but he could do so much more than I could ask or that I could imagine. What do you do when your confidence hits a ceiling? Or have you ever squared up with that reality that you have great confidence in Christ until you don't? Because that affects all of us. We sit here and say, he can do all things. We say, I can do all things that Christ do, through Christ who strengthens me. We can, we can rattle off all those things and, 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 and seem to s- uh, appear that we have this great doctrinal prowess. But the reality is that your and my confidence in Christ does at times hit a ceiling. We lose our confidence in prayer. To lose that is to lose confidence in the one who told us and taught us how to pray. It's to lose confidence in the one who hears and answers our prayers. We lose our confidence in God when we are weary and heavy laden, but our rest comes from something or somewhere other than the one who promises it. You understand this? When we go to secular means, now I don't mean going to a doctor, but we go to something else to supply our joy. We go to something else instead of relying on the Savior to give us rest when we are weary. When we put our eggs in other baskets, whatever metaphor or analogy you want me to use, when we do that, in that moment, it essentially ceases to place our confidence in Christ. When we try to work to find approval of God, as if his atonement hadn't already secured all the approval we could ever have. We lose our confidence, not just in God, but we lose our confidence in the atonement of Christ and what it accomplished. That's what happens when we resort to works for our hope and for our security. Maybe sometimes we're weary from fear, from persecution, maybe battling the lust of our flesh. And instead of finding rest in Christ, we compromise to alleviate the pressures of fear and persecution. Or we appease the lust of the flesh and we give in to it rather than pressing into Christ and to his promises and trusting that he is enough and that he's better than the appeasement of any of my flesh. And that appeasement of flesh comes in many, many different forms, by the way. We lose our confidence in Christ all the time. When we become Christian vigilantes, we become Christian vigilantes to get back at someone for wrong done to us instead of trusting in the justice of God. 
Now, I absolutely agree with a judicial system. I agree that there are laws in place. I agree with so many of those things. But let's sift through proper responses and responses that are not. Because there are those responses. There are those moments where we become Christian vigilantes. Someone has wronged us, so you know what? Rather than saying God has set systems in place, God has done this, we exact our own revenge instead of God being the vindicator, instead of God getting his revenge, as he says, vengeance is his. That's when we lose confidence in God. And so, see, we do it all the time. Because it's easy, but it's also easy to say, I don't lose confidence. You know, I always know that God can, that God can, that God can. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a big difference in what we know God will do and what we know God can do. We know what God cannot do. God can't lie. God can't deny his nature. We understand these things because the scripture explicitly tells us these things. But it gets a little murky when we start to think about it. And we go through some illustrations like I've just given you and you realize all of a sudden, wow, I don't always have confidence in God and my actions. In here, I think he can do all things. But in my actions, and the way that I function, and the way that I practice, it shows the exact opposite. And that's that I lose my confidence. Every time we engage in willful, sinful activity, we lose our confidence that Jesus is better than all things. Functionally, we act out according to our flesh, and we say, I'm going to appease this, I'm going to do this, because I'm just struggling to really lay hold of the fact that Jesus is better than all these things. And I think, Martha, for a moment, may have lost her confidence in Christ. Not in who he was. But if her confidence was soaring, you would think that she would ask whatever she could think, whatever she could imagine, and then know that he would do so much more than that. But I think her confidence just hit a ceiling, and she didn't think. I'm not saying Martha wasn't a Christian. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm saying she's like every man. She's like me. She's like you. And we say, God, you can do this. God, you can do that. But when the rubber starts to meet the road, sometimes we shy away, and we say, uh, you're not doing things on my timetable. You're not doing things like I want you to do them, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Why do we do that? Because we lose confidence in the promises of God, in the authority of God, in the means of God, and we lose confidence and the plans of God, ultimately the sovereignty of God. But Martha's in good company because every one of us are with her. Abraham <laughs> was with her. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a boy. I'm going to give you a boy. <laughs> My wife is barren. I'm going to give you a boy. Ten years goes by. Twenty years goes by. What does Abraham do? He goes through another means to get his boy. And God says, that's not the way. Why did Abraham do that? Because he lost confidence in the promises of God. I'm not talking about self-confidence. I'm not talking about that at all. There's a place for that, but that's a whole different scenario. I'm talking about confidence in God and who he is and what he says and what he's done. But we know the rest of the story here in John chapter 11. Listen, this is a great reminder that Christ's power and his purpose are never contingent on our confidence. This is great news for you. Don't miss this. Feel good about this. We started talking about some tragic stuff. We talked about death and all of these things. But let me boost you up here. It's a great reminder that Christ's power and purpose are never contingent on our confidence in him. And that's exemplified in the text. If Martha was, in fact, lacking confidence in that moment, oh, if you would have been here, things would have been okay. 
But now all hope is lost because he's been in the grave. But Jesus did raise Lazarus, proving that his power, his plan, his ability was not contingent on her belief. Our beliefs, our hopes, our confidence in Christ, these things do not determine the power and the purpose of Jesus. Praise the Lord. So I think their message to him was pretty unique. Finally, quickly, Jesus responds. He responds in a pretty interesting way. So there's a uniqueness in the way that Jesus responds to the message of Mary and to Martha. Listen to verse 4. It says these things. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he got the message. This is how he responds. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified. Lazarus' death definitely came with an agenda, and it is spelled out right here in the book of John. And this is interestingly reminiscent of John chapter 9. If you don't remember, let me remind you that you have a man who has been blind all of his life, and the disciples ask Jesus, who has sinned, this man or this man's parents? And Jesus says, neither. This has happened to him so that the works of God might be displayed in him and now we're here again not too much time has passed you've got another scenario where a man is dead and he says this illness does not lead to death and obviously what jesus meant was that it doesn't lead to eternal death it's not the absolute end of the physical existence of lazarus that's plain to see in the text because someone might say i see jesus caught in a lie (laughs) it didn't happen the way he said it was because lazarus absolutely died come on Obviously, he's saying it doesn't lead to eternal death. It doesn't lead to, well, it doesn't lead to uh, the end of his physical life. So this illness does not lead to death, but there's a purpose here. So nothing is arbitrary in this life. Nothing is by chance. All things are carefully orchestrated and designed by a sovereign God. Pain, suffering, death, they all have purpose. They all have purpose. How sad would it be if you're suffering the death that you've experienced in your family, in your life, the, hor- the, 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 the horror and the sorrows that you've experienced, what if they were for nothing? What if they were arbitrary? What if there was absolutely no purpose? There would be no celebration of life. There would be no grieving as those who have hope. There's none of that. There's none of that. We can celebrate life, and we can, especially Christian life. We can celebrate these things, and we can grieve as those who have hope because even the most tragic of circumstances that we see, whether connected to it or not, directly, indirectly, all have great purpose because God always has an agenda. The agenda here was that Jesus and his divinity might be on display. I told you John's gospel is unapologetic for the deity of Christ. I told you this. And it might be easy for someone to say, look, you know, for, for weeks now, this is like the 32nd sermon or the 31st sermon that you preached on John, and most of them are just deity of Christ, deity of Christ. We get it. We get it. There's a reason that John keeps putting it in our faces. It hinges on, everything hinges on the deity of Christ. So if there's something you need to get as a foundational component of your belief system is that Jesus is God. You have to get that. You do not stand before God justified, blameless, washed, you do not, unless it's built first on the gospel, which the essence of the gospel is that Christ, but namely God, must have given his life and substituted himself so that we could be rescued from our sins, so that he could bear the wrath meant for us. 
So this is a clear agenda, and that is to reveal the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. He says this. It's interesting. It says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, but it doesn't stop there. The glory of God. The glory of God. God does not do what? Share his what? Glory with another. So we could just stop and say this is for the glory of God. I think that's where we went in, in John chapter 9, the glory of God. We talked about God's glory and why God's glory is beautiful and why it matters. But here's something else happens. It's for the glory of God, but listen to these words. This is, this is the clearest it has yet been with regards to the deity of Christ. And here's how you understand it. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Who's getting the glory? The Son of God being glorified through it. You say, well, it says God's getting the glory. Absolutely. The Son of God's getting the glory. God's getting the glory. The only way to reconcile this is to say that the Son of God is God. God does not share his glory with another. Either Jesus is God or the scriptures fall apart right here. And maybe not for somebody in this room, but definitely, probably, for somebody in your life, they have to come to this. They have to come to this crossroad, and they have to make a determination or make a decision in their mind. What am I going to follow? What am I going to believe? Because here's where the rubber really, really meets the road. Because if you don't see it that way as the Scripture is presenting it, the Scriptures fall apart. If, in fact, this is not true. We know that it is. The point is this. If what Jesus is about to do for Lazarus is for the glory of the Son, then we must conclude that Jesus is fully God because God is sharing his glory with the Son. And that can only happen if the Son is God. My goodness, we've heard so much about the deity of Christ in these 10 chapters and now in this 11th chapter. Well, the Holy Spirit saw fit to put it in our face over and over and over again. Don't you think that it should be commonplace in your evangelism? Don't you think that it should be common practice for you to take this information that is being crammed down your throat in a good way for you to spew that out onto people that don't believe, that they may hear? This is critical. It's just unique that Jesus responds in this way. So that's the first sub-point A of the unique response that Jesus offers to this message. The second is this, and I find this kind of intriguing. It says that upon receiving the information of Lazarus dying, Jesus decided to respond in a pretty unique way. Verse 5 says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why in the world, why in the world, upon hearing this information, would Jesus say, hmm, I could go back now, maybe he's still sick, maybe not, but I'm going to stay. Do you understand what he's done here? Lazarus has ensured, I'm sorry, Jesus has ensured that Lazarus would be dead when he, re when he returned. This is what he's done. But, but the prelude to his response is that he loved them. How does, how does this action of waiting to make sure that he's dead, how does that correspond or relate to love between Mary, Martha, and Jesus? How does that express love? If I said to you, hey, uh, if I said to Josh, I love you, brother, 
if you need something, just give me a call. And he calls me. I say, oh, yeah, here, it's, a, it's an important need. But I blow him off. And then I ask him, do you believe that I love you, brother? And he goes, not really, man. Not really. And that's what it seems that Jesus has done. Okay, here's this issue. Why did Jesus blow them off? Why didn't he go? Why didn't he run there? Why didn't he hurry to go to the rescue? Why didn't he just speak right there and say, hey, we'll take care of things right here because, because distance is not a problem for me. It's interesting to read that. And if I'm, if I'm not in Christ or if I'm you know, you know, not even mature enough to see it, I would come to this and be like, I don't get this. How, do you, how does he love them? We know, we know this. Any man who's married knows that he can tell his wife he loves her a thousand times a day, but if he never really shows it, she's not really going to believe him. We know that. Anybody can read that and see that this is kind of weird language, but check this out. And this will be unpacked more later, but you just need to see this, and we're closing this. It's a very strange thing, the way Jesus responds. But there's a strong implication to Jesus staying away. Jesus is strategically setting up opportunities to reveal his divinity. And for people to see and have faith that he is the Son of God is far more important and relevant to the world than for him to speak at that moment and Lazarus be okay. You understand this? This is far more pressing. So Jesus stays an extra two days ensuring that Lazarus dies. What Jesus is doing is he's setting up opportunity. Opportunities for compassion. A compassion shown towards Mary and Martha after losing their beloved brother, which is what we see when he reunites with them after those days. He's setting up an opportunity for faith. Jesus is going to do for them the greatest act of love. He would increase their faith. The greatest act of love in the world is that God might make himself knowable. And you know God, and I know God in Jesus, but now those acts of love are, are continuously dispensed on us in this way, that you continue to know, that your faith continues to grow, that you continue to have confidence in Jesus because of the grace of God. So there's a setting up for faith. There's a setting up for opportunity with regards to proof. Jesus will soon provide the strongest evidence yet for verifying his own divinity by way of works. He stays two days. And when he arrives back, get a little bit ahead, as he arrives back, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Do you know what the rabbinic schools taught of the people who have been dead? After three days, the spirit, according to rabbinic teaching, leaves the body with no chance of reunification. So for three days, the Spirit hovers. This is rabbinic teaching. This is not actuality. But for three days, the Spirit hovers over the body in case of, reun in case of a, a reunification. Jesus knows this. He knows what the schools taught. He knows what the people that would see and that would see this miracle. He knows what they might say. If he showed up, if he showed up day one, day two, or even day three, they could have easily said, ah, no, 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 our our theology says the spirit, the spirit was reunited. You're just cashing in on something we already believe to bolster yourself. But he waits strategically to set up for opportunities for faith and for proof of his divinity because that's what matters most. So he shows up on the fourth day. 
where no rabbi could come and say, but the Spirit's still there. Mm-mm. He was dead. He was gone. He's a passive agent. And then the active agent comes, just like he does in your life and just like he does in my life. And the active agent speaks to your dead heart. And he says, arise. He's setting up for proof. And finally, he's setting up an opportunity for love. Jesus would show great love in providing works that point to his deity so that others might believe. In closing, let me just remind you that Jesus made sure that these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31. That's the agenda. It's that you may know, that you may believe, that you may have life. Let's pray. You are good to us, God. You are faithful. You are consistent. You are personal. And we thank you. Lord, not in an effort to repay you for what you are to us. Not in an effort to make things equal or to be even. But, Lord, in an attempt to show our deep gratitude and thankfulness. Lord, would you cause us to see things more clearly? Would you cause us to express our hope and our confidence in you more fully? Would you help us to be more consistent in our Christianity and what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples? Would you help us to reflect you better as a church? Christ, would you make us a more faithful bride than we are to you? And Lord, would we capitalize or would we act on the great opportunities that we have every day throughout our natural rhythms to be light in the darkness and to express the great love that we've experienced through the gospel as we interact with our fellow man Help us to love them rightly and fully and to point people to Christ always. Lord, would you keep these things on our minds and in our hearts, make them true for us? Would you cause us to think on this text in preparation for next week as we sit under your word again? In Jesus' name, amen.